Today's video was recorded on August 16, 2023. Today's lesson is part of our Bible series in which we're exploring the good news. What do you mean by the good news? And what did this phrase good news communicate in the first century? In this lesson, we're going to delve into the topic of the imperial cult, and in particular, Caesar Augustus. The imperial cult was the state-sanctioned worship of the Caesar as a divine being, someone who had the power of both heaven and earth. And this, of course, is going to directly collide with Jesus in the kingdom of God. This is the historical and cultural context of our New Testament. Please make sure you download the associated class handout because it includes a number of references that will be really important for you to explore. And this is particularly true if you've never heard this topic before. Reading over those references will help you solidify this information. We're so grateful that you've chosen to spend your time with us today. As a nonprofit ministry, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to keep the ministry going. Your financial contributions enable us to focus on bringing you high-quality Bible lessons. Donations cover our ongoing production costs, and they ensure that we can continue delivering valuable teachings that help you see deeper into the biblical text. Now, we understand that not everyone can contribute financially, and that's completely okay. If you're unable to donate at the moment, there are other ways to support us. Simply sharing these lessons with your friends and family or engaging us on social media goes a long way in helping us reach more people. If you are in a position to support us financially, we would be incredibly grateful. No amount is too small, and every donation helps us continue creating the content that you love. So we've included a link in the show notes below, and that'll take you directly to our donate page. To all of our current financial supporters, you know who you are. We give you a shout out for your generosity. We couldn't do this without you. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson exploring the Roman imperial cult and the importance then of placing our faith or our trust in Jesus as the authentic Lord. And we're still going through our series. This is a Bible 101 series. And we're asking the question, what do you mean by the good news? And as we've gone through this series, we've seen that very often in our modern way of thinking, the good news is something different than it was in the first century. And then what we want to do is go back to that first century good news. And I think there is a profound message there for us. It does include forgiveness, no doubt, but there's something greater going on that impacts our Christianity. So we'll continue doing that through this series. The question we're going to be asking tonight is kind of an odd question, I think. What is the good news, okay, what is the good news of Caesar Augustus? And I think if we think about this whole series that we've done about the kingdom of God, this is going to be one of the lessons that it culminates. Everything that we've been talking about in this series, that the good news, when we hear that phrase, really is about the good news of the kingdom of God. And I think it's going to come into focus, okay? And especially next week. Next week, we'll take it to Israel, where 
the good news of Caesar Augustus was actually on display there in Israel, and it would drive those religious Jews crazy. So the main topic tonight is going to be about what's called the Roman Imperial Cult. And they had messaging, now it's propagandistic, but they had propaganda messaging about the Caesars, and in particular, Caesar Augustus. And I'll show you how he comes into play. And so what we're going to see, and this is very important to our understanding of good news as kingdom, is that the kingdom of God with Jesus as Lord is going to be colliding with the kingdom of Rome with Caesar as Lord. That's what's going to be happening. So this is the fourth in our series. It's basically our Bible 101 series, and we're talking about what is the good news. And the place, the picture there in the background, well, this is an amazing archaeological site. Uh, this is a place called Priene. And Priene was a city, ancient town in what was called Asia Minor. Today, it's Turkey. And I'll show you a few pictures in a minute what that looks like. So. The greater context of what's happening in the first century, this is with Jesus, with the disciples, with Paul, and everybody in the early church, is that the Roman Empire in the latter half of the first century BC, that's now we could say BC before Christ or BCE before the Common Era, and then on into the first century AD, this is of course how we reckon time, right, from the birth of Jesus. The imperial cult is a state-sanctioned worship or veneration of the Caesar. And it starts with Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. I'll talk about him in a minute. And this cult, it goes throughout the first century. It's waxing and waning, depending on who's Caesar at the time. But you will find official temples to the Caesar built. It's for the citizens. They'll go offer their incense, their allegiance. We'll look next week again at some of the temples that ended, the temples to Caesar Augustus that ended up in Israel. So I want to look at some ideas, particularly about this historical character that we call Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus is, well, it's not his name, right? Both of those are titles. It's Caesar is like king. Caesar Augustus is the emperor that is to be worshipped. His actual birth name, given name, is Octavian. And Octavian then was the adopted son, therefore the heir uh, of Julius Caesar. And then Octavian, he becomes the first Caesar or emperor of the Roman Empire. And this is important because he's the first one to rule over Rome as an empire, after he defeated Mark Antony, now we're not going to go too much into the history of the Roman Empire, but he defeated Mark Antony, who was over the east in a battle, and then he took control as the Caesar, the emperor of all of the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Senate gives him the title Augustus. It's not his last name, it's a title. And we do this with Jesus, right? Christ is a title, right? Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. So Christ is, sometimes people think of it, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Christ had a son, they named him Jesus. It's like, no, it's not his last name. It's his title. It's Jesus the Christ. 
So it's the same with Octavian. We speak about him as if his name is Augustus, but actually, that's the title. Well, what does Augustus mean? Well, Augustus means to be venerated, the worshipped one. It's the Caesar who was to be venerated, the Caesar to be worshipped. Now, he was the full emperor of the Roman Empire from 27 BC to 14 AD. Now, that's a long time, 41 years. And if you think about it, I mean, you know, some people get antsy when, when we have a president in power for four years maybe eight years, and then everybody's kind of itching for this guy to move on. Can you imagine 41 years, right? Ronald Reagan would still be president. But if you look at those dates, 27 BC, which is before Christ, or BCE, before the Common Era, to 14 AD, and that covers the time of Jesus' birth. So, the way that we reckon time, the switch from B.C. to A.D., that's how we keep track of years based on the birth of Jesus. So Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This is telling the story of Jesus' birth, but look who he mentions. So Luke is sure to tell us who's in charge. Who does the world see as in charge? Caesar Augustus. And what's very cool, as what we'll see, is right underneath the nose of both Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great there in Bethlehem, God, the kingdom of God, infiltrates the kingdom of Rome in the form of a baby. Born in the town of Bethlehem, who will one day bring about a kingdom now the kingdom of God, a different kind of kingdom. Okay? So this is Caesar Augustus, very important. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about where we're going tonight, that background picture there. This is an ancient city called Priene in a region of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor. Very important to the birth of Christianity is Asia, is Asia Minor. So let me show you where it is on a map. This is the Mediterranean Sea. You can see all the blue in the middle. That's the Mediterranean Sea there. And Israel is just a small, about the size of New Jersey, small part of that Roman Empire. The Roman Empire extended all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. We're not going to talk about so much where the Roman Empire was, but just realize Israel is the southeastern border of that Roman Empire. Small, backwards place but of course, very important. You have Egypt to the south, with Alexandria, Egypt being the most important city there. And then you have uh, Greece with Athens right over here. And then you can see the boot of Italy and Rome. Of course, that's the seat of Roman power. And the area that we're going to is right here. And this is where the gospel goes. It leaves Israel and it goes to Asia Minor. So, so much of our Bible is written to this area, modern-day Turkey, called Asia Minor. In fact, so much of our Bible is just in this one little circle right here. This is where it begins to incubate uh, within the Greco-Roman world, that little circle. So if we go closer to that, we see the major city there is Ephesus. And of course, that was one of the most important cities in Asia Minor, one of the most important cities in the world. And that's where Paul lived. And eventually John comes to Ephesus. And we have the book to the Ephesians. And 
John writes his gospel from Ephesus, and it's got Ephesus, the fingerprints of Ephesus, all over it. The book of Revelation, you got to understand those cities that surround Ephesus. So, a very important location. Now, we're going to Priene, though. So, if we go just to the south, well, you can see it pinned on my map. And it's an absolutely beautiful site. You can go there today. It's an amazing archaeological site. Just beautiful because you have the cliffs of these high mountains, beautiful trees. And it was an incredible city. I mean, they had enough money. This is a temple to Athena. Athena was the goddess of the city. And you can see that Acropolis in the background. They had temples at the top of that. If you want to walk up there, you can still walk up there today. This was a large city. They had their, this is the town council. So it was well established. I mean, here's one of the main roads, one of the main roads that went down to the harbor. I'll show you. It used to be a harbor town. The sea is now a couple miles away, but you can see that Roman road. They even had a sewer system there. Uh, here's a picture of the harbor, and you can see this outline right here of the harbor. So that water used to be all the way back up to where, this, uh, where Priene is today. Same with Ephesus. It got silted over. Um, it was large enough to have a Jewish community. There was a synagogue. They found this stone here with the menorah carved into it. And so this is pretty cool because obviously the, the roots of Christianity is the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith. And so that means that this city was already primed. It had the scripture. It had the Hebrew Bible. And they're already primed to hear about the good news of Israel's Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah. Now, the Bible doesn't mention, the New Testament doesn't mention pre-NA. But without a doubt, Paul and John and the others, well, they would have at least stopped by. If there's a Jewish community there, they're going to stop in the synagogue and they're going to talk about the Messiah. And so it was large enough, and within the close proximity of Ephesus, no doubt they would have gone there. Now, the place I really want to take you, though, is this room right here. So it's in this room right here that archaeologists found an inscription that has to do with Caesar Augustus. And the inscription dates to about 9 BC, so again, before Jesus is born. And what's interesting is, the inscription speaks about the good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus for the world. Now, that's exactly what Luke tells us the angels said when Jesus was born. And so we're going to read this inscription, and you're going to see it's the same Greek word, good news, that's used for Caesar as is used in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers and Jesus know what they're doing. That word is charged. It's a political word because it has to do with the kingdom of Caesar at that moment. It's also going to say, you'll see in the inscription, that Caesar Augustus is both savior, now that's very common in the ancient world, it's very common for any political leader to be a savior, the one who can bring order to the chaos. Now, of course, they can't, but this is what they want you to believe. And that pretty much hasn't changed in, in the thousand years that people have wanted to be in power. But it says that he's both a savior and a god. Okay? And now I want to point out, this can be a difficult lesson. So I've included a handout. And on that handout, I have a lot of footnotes. And you're going to want to explore all this information. Many of those footnotes have hyperlinks. 
Make sure you go to the websites, become familiar with it. It'll really help you to process all of this information because it may be new to you. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it can be difficult. But this is a message. It's a powerful message that the New Testament writers are trying to tell us. And that message still applies to us today. So make sure you check out all the resources we have. Uh, and there's links below in the description section. So we're going to look at Caesar Augustus. And what's actually happening is that kingdoms are colliding. The good news of the kingdom of God is going to be in a head-on collision with the kingdom of Rome. So we have to understand something about what the messaging is or the ideals of that Roman Empire are, and then compare that to what the Bible says about the kingdom of God. Now, to do that, it takes some study, right? So I'm including a resource. I'm going to recommend this one resource for you. It's called In Search of Paul. And the subtitle here is How Jesus' Apostle Opposed the Roman Empire with God's Kingdom. And that's exactly what we've been saying the good news is. And what the authors are trying to do, this is uh, John Dominic Crossan and Jonathan Reed, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to place Paul firmly back into the first century, into that Roman Empire, and the message of the good news of God's kingdom. Now, it's a very detailed book. They reference a lot of archaeology, a lot of ancient documents. The authors tell you in the book that they have been to the, all of these places that they're talking about, and that includes pre-NA. But they're trying to help us understand the message of the first century context. So this is a great book. It's, it's not, to me, it's not exactly easy reading that you just read through on a weekend. It's slow and laborious because it's full of so many details. So this is a great book to help you understand how these two kingdoms are colliding. Okay? So one of the things that we're going to have to understand is that with each political leader, there was promise of a new order, or what we could say, a new world order. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but truly. This is what they're claiming, okay? So this is one of these ideas that surrounds the imperial cult and the Caesar that with the arrival of this new leader, right, the arrival of a Caesar, whether it was Augustus or someone else to follow them, that their arrival was supposed to usher in a new era, a new order, or a new world order. Now, what is this supposed to look like? Well. It's kind of the same things that humanity has been looking for for years. So we could say, well, it's law and order. It's health and prosperity. We're going to bring order to the chaos. Humanity has long looked for the individual that's able to bring the order to the chaos. It's justice and mercy. And above all, we're going to be able to provide peace. At least that's the claim of the Caesars, of this imperial cult, that if you just stick with us, we will lead you down the path to peace. Now, what's really interesting about this is we could put side by side Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah. This is what the Roman world is promising, 
but it's also what's described in the Bible. There's going to be a new world order. Who's in charge? King Messiah. And all the same things are promised in Isaiah. Law and order, health and prosperity, justice and mercy, and ultimately peace. A new heavens and a new earth. It's a new creation. And so what you see is that the Roman world order with Caesar as Lord, well, it can never happen. But with the power of God and King Messiah as Lord, you can take somebody down the path of peace. Okay? So they're both promising, both Roman, uh, and I think all world leaders, but especially here in the Roman Empire and the Bible, are promising a new world order. Okay? Now, what's the path, right? What's the path? How do we achieve the peace? What's the Roman way? Well, the Roman way was peace through victory. So, the very first thing they would say, and this is in their propaganda, it's in the book, the, in the search for Paul, they say, piety, let's return to the virtues of old, what made Rome great. Return to those virtues. War. We're going to subject you to our peace, so you better not fight. Victory. War and victory show our strength and that we're superior. And then when we defeat you, then we can have peace. Right? Now, how do you feel? Does that include justice? How do you feel if you're one of those countries like Israel, placed under the boot of Rome? Maybe you had your land stolen from you. Okay? But now remember, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to say, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the earth. And so you say, all right, what's the kingdom of God? What's Jesus' message? Well, Jesus' message is covenant. In fact, he's bringing on a new covenant so that the entire world can enter into a covenant relationship with God. See our Bible 101 series about covenant. This is one of the foundational concepts of our Bible. And we need to know what that means. I mean, God is a God who covenants and covenant is about relationship, like a marriage. And Jesus wants to bring you back to that covenant. But it's a new covenant, right? We have the old covenant and the new covenant. That's our Bible. It's forgiveness, right? Not war. What does Jesus say about our enemies? We forgive our enemies. And, you know, our, the church wants to focus on God's forgiveness of our sins as, as individuals. But Jesus' focus is not that. His focus is you need to forgive everybody else who's harmed you. That's the path to peace. Now, are we concerned with victory? No. We want justice. And this is very hard for people. It was very hard for me. It's taken years. Because I'm a competitive person, this has taken years. We don't want to win just to win at the expense of somebody else or an injustice. Now, if you follow covenant, forgiveness, justice, you will end up in peace, and it will be a peace that far surpasses anything that you could ever imagine. That's the kingdom of God. And then what do we do? What do we do as kingdom people now that we've entered this kingdom? We repeat this, right? Follow the advice of your shampoo bottle. Lather, rinse, repeat. 
Okay? You continually go back to covenant. God, please forgive me for my sins. Let me come back into relationship. God says, great. I forgive those around me that are inevitably going to upset me so that I don't become bitter and angry and seek revenge. God doesn't want that. I seek above all else justice, not winning myself. And that leads to a peace that we can't even understand. In fact, our world is so anti this that it's very hard for people to think, how could I go through life not winning and end up at peace? That's the paradox. Okay? Now, all of this, because we have to compare Rome with the kingdom of God, and the big question that the, our New Testament writers, they're forcing you to answer this question who do you call Lord? Caesar or Jesus? Who do you place your trust in? Who has the power, the agency to actually produce long term change? And when we make Jesus Lord, meaning he has sovereignty not just over the cosmos, but in our own lives, then we need to follow his path to peace. Right? Do you practice forgiveness? It's a virtue. Do you have a tool? My goodness, we all know that you ought to forgive. I just don't know how to forgive, right? What do you think I'm doing over here? I'm trying to forgive. I don't have a tool. Give me a practical tool. Why isn't the church teaching a practical tool, a method for forgiving, so that ultimately I can release that upset and find peace, right? You cannot, period, cannot love your neighbor if you cannot forgive. It's something that we're missing. We're too focused on the forgiveness from God and not enough on forgiveness of others. And then justice, it's, it's everybody has their own conception of justice. Are we willing to give something up in certain areas so that other people will not experience an injustice that's just inherent to life? Okay? So, how do we find peace? It's right there. Go back to the covenant. Forgiveness, justice. And this is radical, folks. I mean, it was radical in the first century. It's still radical today. And people cannot understand, what do you mean I give up something and I find peace? It's like, yes. To lose your life is to find your life. So it's the radical peace of God that we simply cannot understand if we walk the path, but we have to have confidence in the path. Okay. Now, next, and this is really going to be where things get a little bit difficult. And if there's, if there's a point in the lesson where I run the risk of upsetting someone, it's likely here. Okay. And what has happened is that for so long, We've read our Bible completely abstracted from the historical and cultural context within which it was written. And when we do that, it takes on a different meaning, just like the good news. The whole point of this series is to go back to these foundational concepts that we've kind of lost touch with. And then what happens, and I was talking with someone the other day about this, and he said, you know, I think, I think that when we read the Bible, we tend to cherish the way that we think about it, right? Our own concepts of what it means. And then a lesson like this comes along, 
and it challenges our concepts, and that's not easy. And this is why I've provided so many links. If you're struggling with this lesson, because I know many people do, give yourself some grace. Allow the process of relearning to happen. And it can take some time. Ask God to give you, give you the eyes to see truth and show you the truth about his kingdom, because God loves to reveal this stuff to people. So, what's going to happen is if we look at the titles that Caesar takes on, at least in the imperial cult, and then the events that go on with Caesar, again, in particular, Caesar Augustus, we're going to say, whoa, wait a minute. Is that our Bible writers are using language from the imperial cult, and they're doing it purposefully, okay? Now, I'm gonna, I've got a resource, so you're not alone on this. Let me give you a resource here. Now, this is an academic paper by Craig Evans. Craig Evans is a New Testament scholar. It's called Mark's Insipit. Now, insipit is an academic word for the opening word. So this is the first sentence of Mark. So Mark's Insipit and the pre-NA calendar inscription. That's where we're at. We're at pre-NA. We're going to look at this calendar inscription. And notice what it says. From the Jewish gospel, that's good news, right? From the good news from Isaiah to the Greco-Roman good news, okay? Now, you can actually download this. This is great because this resource is actually available to you. I'm very happy about that. Now, let me help you. I want to tell you how you can find this, okay? It's on the Wikipedia page. So if you go to Google and you just Google calendar inscription of pre-NA or you write, you Google pre-NA calendar inscription, the very first one uh, website that'll pop up is Wikipedia. Go to the Wikipedia page. You can read about this inscription, but also at the very bottom of the page, you will find number one reference for this Wikipedia entry, Craig Evans. So this article is from 2000, and it's archived on the internet, right? So you, right where you see this PDF symbol, click on that. It will open up a website that has this article, and you can download it yourself. And it's really important because he's going to lay out all the details that you need to know, okay? And the important thing is, is that you can download that PDF, print it out. That's very, always very helpful. Keep it for future reference, okay? But one of the things he does is he goes through the titles for the Caesars that we also use for Jesus and the events, okay? So, for instance, Caesar's called Lord. Now, the title Lord, well, that's not anything new. It has to do with having sovereignty over something, right? Sovereignty usually has to do with a kingdom. So, whoever is over the kingdom is Lord. But in this case, it's not only the Roman Empire, but it also refers to the forces which provide for the prosperity, the justice, the health, the peace. In the Roman propaganda, Caesar Augustus is seen as the one whose worship, even by all of those forces that were called gods, he's above all of them. So he's truly, in their minds, Lord. Okay? Now, this one gets crazy. He's also called Son of God. Okay? And you can see it's propaganda. What they said was, ah, 
when he came into power, they had an event, and a whole bunch of witnesses said, ah, there's a comet in the sky or whatever it was. You can read about this in Roman writings. There's a comet in the sky. That is the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to be with the gods, which makes his adopted son Octavian, who we call Augustus, the son of God. And he, the son of God, then reigns here on earth via the power of his Father in heaven. He's also called Savior. Again, all the kings want to be called Savior, the one who has the power to bring forth order out of the chaos, the one who can deliver you. Of course, they fail over and over and over. Now, the last thing, and this gets really interesting, and this is what the whole paper is about, is that we're going to see that the birth of Caesar Augustus is being called the good news for the world. And that one really throws everybody for a loop. But you have to understand, the New Testament writers are using that language to tell you that, oh no, Caesar's not it, Jesus is, okay? But his birth, Caesar's birth, was good news for the world. Now, what about events? Well, Caesar even had an ascension, and they called it an apotheosis. And there's a Roman historian, Suetonius. He's recording this. And what he says is, a witness testified to seeing the soul of Augustus ascend to heaven. And therefore, he takes his rightful place among the gods at the right hand of his father. It's called apotheosis. I'll show you a picture from this is a Roman, um, well, it's propaganda piece. This is the apotheosis of Titus. Now, Titus was a later Roman Empire in, se in the 70s. Actually, he's the one who was the general who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But you can see here in this picture, they show Titus riding an eagle. So right here is an eagle. He's being transported into the heaven. Again, it's propaganda for the Roman Caesars. But this is why when Jesus says, you are witnesses to what? To my miracles? Yes. To my ministry? Yes. To my resurrection? Yes. And also to my ascension. That's how the book of Acts opens. And you have to understand that Caesar Augustus, at least in their propaganda, claimed the same thing. So Luke is telling us something. Okay. Again, this is all in that paper. You got to read it. Okay. You got to read that paper. You have the ascension. He's seated at the right hand of a deity. He has an advent. This is the arrival. Advent means the arrival. And we would say that the first advent of Jesus is his birth, his nativity at that Christmas event. His second advent is going to usher in a whole new era, the Messianic age. Advent is Latin, Greek, parousia. This is the Lord coming again. Paul uses that word in Thessalonians. When we talk second coming, this is where people are getting it from. It's the idea of the second coming. Well, the Caesars had an advent. Okay? So, you know, even in our Bible, when Jesus shows up, he's, when he shows up to Jerusalem, it's an advent of sorts. 
It's a return, a visitation. He's the Messiah, the agent of God, who's going to bring the presence of God for judgment. It's a visitation. See how you're doing. Now, what's happening here is Jesus, the gospel writers, the book of Acts, Paul, they're all using this language that's familiar to the people of the first century. And it's a direct challenge to the Roman system. So this language, is, it's not invented for Jesus, right? It's not brand new language that everyone says, oh, wow, that's cool. I've never heard of that. This is common language of the day, but set in a different context. And it's now being used for Jesus. And the implication is Jesus is the real deal. Whoever happens to be Caesar is not. And so, whoa, if you're Mark, right? You're Mark and you're writing your gospel. By the way, in Rome, underneath the nose of, it's going to be Nero or very close to Nero's death. If Mark is in Rome and he says, hey, let me start my gospel with this sentence, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, boom, you just drop the bomb. And whether you're Jewish and you say, ah, that's the Jewish Messiah coming, or you're Roman and you say, whoa, wait a minute. That is Caesar language. Either way, it gets your attention. And then you're going to have to ask the question, who's Lord? Who is truly Lord? Okay? And by the way, this is so radical because those early Christians, they flipped the world on its head. And they didn't have an army, and there was no war, and there was no victory. They did it through forgiveness and love and justice, and you feed the poor and you share your meal with the slave. Maybe you even let the slave eat first, which would have been unheard of in the Roman Empire. That is radical power, and it flips the world on its head. That's the kingdom power, okay? So let's go to the inscription. Let's see what, because what I have to do is I have to set this up. Once you read the inscription and understand the way that that imperial cult thought about the Caesars and the language that was being used, now you can read the inscription with new eyes, okay? So this inscription was found in Priene. It comes from around 9 BC. And what they're trying to do, it's very important to understand this, they want, this is the Greeks of Asia Minor, they want to restart their calendar system. They want to restart the way that they reckon time to match with the birth of Augustus, who they're calling their God and Savior. Now, what do we do? If I say it's 2023, what is that a reference to? How do we reckon our years from the birth of our Savior? So it's exactly the same idea. They're doing it first, okay? And then it's adopted in the Roman Empire because, well, it's still the Roman Empire. Let's change our calendar. Okay, so you get the point. Now, let's go to the inscription. The inscription, of course, well, it's Greek. So it says, the decree of the Greek assembly in the province of Asia. Now, that's where we're at, right? We're in pre-NA, that's in Asia Minor, on the motion of the high priest Apollonios. Now, you notice something. What they're saying in the description is all of this is divinely ordained, right? 
Providence is a Roman goddess, whereas Providence that orders all of our lives has in her display of concern and generosity, in our behalf, adorned our lives with the highest good. What's the highest good? Augustus. And then it goes on to say, whom she has filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity. Listen to that language. And has in her beneficence granted us and those who will come after us a savior. And so there's your language about savior. Now, why is he a savior? And this gets into that Roman New World Order. He has made war to cease, and who shall put everything in its peaceful order? That's the promise. Okay, now let's keep going. And whereas Caesar, when he was manifest, so when he came into being, he transcended the expectations of all who had anticipated the good news. Okay. Not only by surpassing the benefits conferred by his predecessors, but by leaving no expectation of surpassing him to those who would come after him. So he's basically outdone everybody. And then here's the main line, and this is where scholars look because it reflects the the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And this is what that article by Craig Evans is focusing on. So it says there's good news, right? And then it says this, with the result that the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news for the world because of him. And there you have the idea, same Greek word for good news, and the same thing that Luke says, it's good news for the world. Now, first of all, this kind of blows your mind the first time you hear it. But you have to understand, this is a great question that you may consider asking. In fact, what I would do is take it to God, okay? Take it to God and say, God, why? Why? At this particular moment in time, did you send your son Jesus? Why at that moment? Why not 100 years, 200 years, maybe 300 years earlier, right? If Jesus is critical for the salvation of the world, why not send him earlier? Why at that moment, when there happened to be somebody, Caesar Augustus, reigning, who was also called the Son of God, did you decide to send your son? And boom, there you go. Because everything, all of this propaganda is an affront to God and his Messiah. But there's something cool going on here, that God waited for the perfect timing. The people of the world are looking for a Savior. They want someone who can deliver them from the chaos. Someone who possesses the power of the cosmos to fix everything. What happens? We, I mean, we do this today. We can easily project all of these qualities onto a human leader. Many people look at political figures as messiahs, as having the power to fix everything, to bring about perfect justice. And what happens throughout all of history, over and over and over again, they fail. And so God chooses this moment. And what's interesting is, when Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus is in charge. But by the time of his death, 
that's Tiberius. And then when the good news is going out into that Roman Empire, 50s, 60s, 70s of the first century, that Roman Empire is a mess. None of those Caesars were able to actualize what they said they were able to do. And the people were dejected, and they're looking for a Messiah that won't fail them. And then the good news shows up from Paul, from John, from Peter, and it walks right into a culture and a context that's hungry for a hopeful message of a Savior. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, let me finish this, or at least go to the next thing so you can see what's going on, but it has to do with this calendar, right? So it says, Proconsul Paul Fabius Maximus, he's discovered a way to honor Augustus that was hitherto unknown among the Greeks. Namely, he's going to reckon time from the date of his nativity, his birth. That's what we do. Therefore, with the blessings of good fortune and for their own welfare, the Greeks in Asia decided that the new year should begin for all cities on September 23rd. That's the birthday of Augustus. And that's what this whole inscription is all about. But you can see that language that's being used. You know, just like in the Old Testament, all of these words that we think are religious words, only associated with the Bible, redemption and covenant, they're not. Those are cultural. And then the Bible writers use them to describe what God is up to. And they do the same thing in the New Testament. So Jesus uses these words. All of the writers of the New Testament focus on these words because they're, they're forcing you to, in the first century to consider who's Lord. And this theme, this kingdom of God theme, this is ongoing throughout the Bible. From the beginning, right, we could even start at the Tower of Babel. Those tower builders thought they were in charge. The way the Bible describes, you know, we have a video on this. I'll put the link down below about the Tower of Babel because it's just a fascinating story. And the Bible tells us that, you know, they're trying to build a tower to the heavens. And that means they're trying to cross that boundary from being earthly to having the power of the heavens. Right? And then the funny thing is, is they're building this tower and God has to come down to see what's going on. Right? Tells you how tall their tower was. And then we realize in the story, whose kingdom was actually reigning? God's or the tower builders? And it was God's. And then we go to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, he thinks he's in charge. He's the most powerful person in the world. He was viewed as a divine or semi-divine, that he had the power of the heavens to keep the cosmos in order. And then God shows up, and of course, Pharaoh finds out the hard way whose kingdom was actually reigning. So Pharaoh is all about a kingdom and who's actually in charge. Nebuchadnezzar, I mentioned this last week with Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the kingdoms of the earth think they're in charge until they realize they're not. And then they point to the God of Israel or God of Daniel and say, that's the God that needs to be worshipped. And then we can fast forward and say, what about Augustus? He thinks he's in charge or any of the Caesars that follow him. And what happens over and over and over? Fail, 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 fail. 
They're nothing but human beings, no more, no less. They don't have the agency, or the agency that they think they have, that God has, to hold everything together. And so God continually steps in, reality steps in, and spoils their plans. And what's so cool, how does God infiltrate this kingdom, especially the kingdom of Rome? Through a baby. It's so like God. He always uses the weakest, the least, the last to flip everything on its head. So right under the nose of Herod the Great, right under the nose of Caesar Augustus, you start a new kingdom, a movement that's going to be radical. And you have to look at what's the path. Are you following the path to forgiveness? Okay? This is how we move through this kingdom. So, we go back to our question. The good news of the birth of Caesar? Not a chance, folks. Where's Caesar today? Is he transforming lives? No. Who's transforming lives for the goodness of God? Jesus is. Who's increasing the kingdom through the path of covenant forgiveness, and justice, Jesus is. Who has the authentic power to save? Jesus does. And ultimately, who's going to be the final judge? Jesus. So you place your confidence in him. Allow him to reign in your life. In fact, learn what that means for Jesus to truly reign in your life. Allow him, because we don't have to allow him to transform our lives. We can stop him, and he'll say, okay, it's your choice. I give you free will. He will transform you in goodness. He'll heal your wounds. He'll deliver your soul. And he has the power to do it, and he will not fail you, and he will not forsake you. And that is why you call him Lord and not Augustus. Now, I'm going to show you one more thing next week. It pertains to this because this imperial cult made it to Israel. And we know from archaeological records that there were three temples built in Israel by Herod the Great that were temples to Caesar Augustus. And I want you to consider one of them, I'll show you where all three are, but one of them, if you go to the, in the northern part of Israel near Caesarea Philippi, I want to take that conversation that's happening between Peter and Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, and instead of looking at the pagan gods, Pan and other ones, let's look at right next to Caesarea Philippi is a temple to Caesar Augustus. Let's look at that temple. Let's consider what's being said in light of that instead of the pagan worship site. So that'll be next week, and I think your eyes will be opened and you'll say, wow, this Bible is cooler than I've ever imagined. This is the good news, folks. The kingdom is reigning. Jesus is Lord. He will transform your life.